Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Fresh and Salty podcast, a deep dive into the world of estuaries, those special places where rivers meet the sea or the Great Lakes of the upper Midwest. As our guides, we will have on this podcast the people who know estuaries inside and out, the scientists, educators, and friends of the National Estuarine Research Reserve System. This unique NOAA-sponsored network of 29 reserves studies and protects more than 1.3 million acres of estuarine lands and waters nationwide, much of them open to the public for recreation and learning. Like the waters of an estuary, this podcast is a fresh and salty mix. It explores the challenges facing estuaries in their communities, serves up solution-focused science and education, and we hope raises the curtain on the beauty and wonder of the great estuaries of the American shoreline. Fresh and Salty is presented by the American Shoreline Podcast Network and sponsored by our good friends at the National Estuarine Research Reserve Association, a national nonprofit that supports and advocates for the reserve system and their mission to serve their communities and the nation. This pod is for anyone who lives, works, and plays on the coast and believes like we do that future generations should have the opportunity to do the same. I am your host, Peter Ravella, and for this inaugural episode of the Fresh and Salty podcast, I am joined by two amazing guests. Corey Riley is the reserve manager at the Great Bay National Estuarine Research Reserve in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Corey is the boss and oversees the reserve's education, research, stewardship, and coastal training programs. We are also joined today by Mark Silberstein, the executive director of the Elkhorn Slough Foundation in Monterey Bay, a nonprofit organization that works in concert with the Elkhorn Slough National Estuarine Research Reserve to conserve and restore one of the last remaining wetlands on the Central California coast. Thank you, Corey, and thank you, Mark, for joining us for the show today. Corey, I'd like to start with you. Can you tell us about the research reserve that you manage and how you became part of that organization? So I'll tell you a little bit about Great Bay first. It is a really unique place. Um, When people think of the coast, they think of waves crashing on a beach. And the Great Bay estuary is actually 15 miles inland. It's a bay that opens up um, 15 miles from the Atlantic coast up a large river called the Piscataqua River. So we, um, but it's, it's, if you Google Great Bay and you take a look at it, it looks like this big inland lake, but it's actually um, tidal and it has a very strong tidal um, exchange. And we receive water from seven rivers that surround the bay. So it has quite a bit of freshwater influence for an estuary, which makes it even more connected to the historic communities that surround it. Um, Here in New England, so many of the industrial cities were built um, along rivers because that's what the source of power was. And before that, in colonial times, it's really how people exchanged goods and got around was around the rivers. So we have this really rich cultural history of being connected to the water um, in the Northeast and in particular, these rivers that flow into Great Bay. If you came to Great Bay and stood at our visitor center, 
um, for about half the day, you'd be looking at at least a football field of very large mud flats, and you'd be seeing all the birds swooping in, and you would see the large channels of the rivers coming into the Great Bay. Um, so it looks very different than what some people think of when they think of a coast, but it's gorgeous, and I love it, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Sounds like an extraordinary place. How did you get to the reserve, Corey? I ended up here because I, as a graduate student, I knew I wanted to work on something coastal. Being from um, northern, northeastern Massachusetts, I spent my life um, along the coast and knew that I loved wetlands. There's something about being stuck in the mud. And once you're stuck in <laughs> a coastal wetland, right. you really do feel this sense of joy and freedom. And you just want to stay in that mud forever. And um, so I knew I wanted to do something. And when I got to graduate school, I explored both the physical sciences and the policy side. And I was working at a um, an institute at the University of uh, Massachusetts in Boston and had the opportunity to work on a project with some of the reserves around the country. And my boss at the time said, well, there are a few of them in New England. You should go conduct these interviews because I was asked to interview the managers of Mm. the New England reserves. Mm. You should go and do it in person. And so I'll never forget, it was March and it was cold and it was raining. And I drove down to Wakoit Bay, which is on Cape Cod. And I arrived there and I knew that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. There was just something about the combination of science and the science being so driven by what was needed in the community and the integration of what people were learning with what they were sharing with students, with the citizens in the town and with um, their state agency that I just knew this is what matters. This is this is real um, applied work that I'm passionate about. And so after graduation, I had an opportunity to work with the federal partner for NOAA. And after about six years, I was in DC for that time. And I love Washington, DC. It has amazing food. It has wonderful, colorful neighborhoods. And there's lots of interesting work to do there, but it's hard to get to the ocean. So I was ready to come back to New England and be a little closer to the ocean. And um, after a few years, I realized that I had about four reserves to choose from that I could try to find a job at. And I got very lucky. And I happened to be working right at UNH when this job opportunity came forward. And I knew that 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 was my chance and I had to go for it. Corey, what an interesting journey and one that I really appreciate from the the marble halls of DC to the wetlands. I I can see the appeal. Mark, why don't you uh, give us a tour of the reserve and how you got to Elkhorn Slough? Yeah, you know, I first came to Elkhorn Slough on a college invertebrate zoology field trip in 1968. And we came to Elkhorn Slough, which was already legendary for having really rich tide flats that the uh, organisms living in the tidal flats of Elkhorn Slough uh, had been written about starting in the 1920s by George McGinnity, a noted zoologist, marine biologist, and then Ed Ricketts uh, of Cannery Row fame, uh, wrote his legendary book, Between Pacific Tides, which opened up the world of the intertidal zone to the world. Um, 
And he wrote about Elkhorn Slough. It was a place where there was a unique suite of organisms that lived in these tidal flats. And so as a young student, I came and we dug up some of the strange creatures that live in these tide flats. And soon after that, I, uh, I started studying at Moss Landing Marine Laboratories, which is located, you know, close to the mouth of Elkhorn Slough. Um, and, you know, for, for those students going to the Moss Landing Marine Laboratories, which is run by the state universities, Elkhorn Slough was our backyard. It was sort of where students cut their teeth on learning how to study and quantify these marine ecosystems. And, um, you know, I got stuck in the mud and I could never free myself. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, uh, it, being on the foundation side and in the nonprofit community, um, what is it, do you think, that brings people to your door, into your programs, and into the reserve system uh, that inspires them and and sort of draws out of them this notion of seeking a greater understanding of these areas. What do you think, uh, what can you say about that? Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, I think the first thing, and, and I think that Corey mentioned this too, a sense of place. But when you come to this place, you know, in Elkhorn Slough, the visitor center, the National Eastern Research Reserve, which has a wonderful visitor center and five miles of trails that wind through a variety of really interesting habitats from grasslands to oak woodlands down to these tidal marshes. But for me, I mean, I'll tell you that like I walked from my little office across the parking lot to Dave Felice, the manager of the reserves office. And I look out over this bluff to this sinuous meandering waterway flank my marshes with Monterey Bay in the distance. And after all these years, I still pause in my tracks and I look over that place and I just go, this is cool. <laughs> it's just spectacular. Right. And so I think for, you know, that, that people connect on these things in lots of different ways. But I think even if, even for the most erudite scientists, you're simply moved by, by what you see, by the beauty and by the, uh, you know, just sort of you're immersed in this panorama of living things, remarkable vegetation, trees, and Elkhorn Slough, and a lot of these sites around the country are hotspot for birds, for migratory birds, both aquatic and terrestrial. And so to, to pause in the midst of some of the craziness in our busy lives when things aren't in the midst of a pandemic um, and to breathe that air, that fresh salty air and to look out over these landscapes and hear these birds calling and, and uh, you know, I mean, I think that's yeah. to me and yeah. I think for a lot of folks, those are the roots of inspiration. And then you layer on top of that. I mean, I think like, uh, like Corey described, that stimulates your curiosity and your interest in learning more about, you know, what makes these places tick. But I think it's sort of that fundamental connection 
to nature that is the springboard for inspiration. One of the things that I like, Corey, about this, and it's in the name, it's the National Estuarine Research Reserve System, and research and science is a real thing here. Can you talk about this, this, the importance of science in the work that you do and help our audience understand how serious an endeavor that is? This is really what the reserve's primary purpose was when we were created by Congress. We, um, we are place-based, which means that, as Mark described, people can come and be inspired and visitors can really gain an awareness and appreciation of estuarine systems. But the reason why Congress decided that we needed to be places was actually to protect them as platforms for long-term research and monitoring. Understanding that if you sample, um, whether it's you're sampling crabs or you're sampling salt marsh or you're sampling eelgrass, if you do that in a different place year after year after year, you never really know what the long-term trend is. And so it was very intentional that we would be places where we could study both short-term changes between seasons or between um, or before and after an event, but also longer-term um, changes in the estuary. And because at the time when reserves were created, Congress knew that wetlands were being destroyed at a phenomenal rate, but they didn't really even know what the effect of destroying those wetlands was. And so we were really kind of established to figure that out. What is a what is a good wetland, how does it function? And how can we make sure that we maintain that, not just in these protected areas, but in other places around the coast? You know, it's the, it, the fact of the matter is that the uh, amazing areas uh, along the American shoreline and these coastal assets that we have in our country uh, do not automatically protect themselves. It takes a boatload of work and dedicated people. I loved what you said, Corey, about the information being applied, that the scientific research year in and year out helps identify the trends, the threats, the changes. But the purpose of that scientist is to, science is to get that information in the hands of the decision makers. And hopefully, I think the assumption is, we will do fewer bad things. Mark, out in California, uh, one of the states early hit by COVID, uh, have you seen a change in, in how the area is used and the programs associated with it? And I'm curious about if there's been any uh, change in the critters and how they're using the space too. Uh, can you talk about how COVID has affected uh, your area? Yeah, the, uh, you know, the reserve did close. The guidance from the state and the governor was that, uh, you know, these public places just had to close down. So uh, Dave Felice, the reserve manager, complied with that. Um, most staff have been working from home. But as Corey described, there was a great pivot in the, particularly the education staff at the reserve has been putting out fantastic online resources I mean, I'll, I'll tell you about one response that was sort of interesting and unexpected to me. You know, at the north end of Elkhorn Slough, on land that the Elkhorn Slough Foundation owns, we set up an outdoor classroom across from Hall Elementary School. Uh, and it, it's in the, the community of Las Lomas. It's a disadvantaged community, a 90% Spanish-speaking community. Um, you know, 
really uh, a lot of unemployment and COVID just exacerbated those things. But for the last four years, these kids from the elementary school have been walking across the street and coming to this outdoor classroom and going down the creek. The class, the school itself is an asphalt encrusted schoolyard with one little green space. But across the street are 3,000 acres of this beautiful, amazing land and these organic farms. And when this hit, as Corey described, these students stopped coming overnight. And our staff had just bonded with these kids. And one of our donors challenged us. He said, what, what is the relevance of a land trust during times like this, when people have these critical needs, you know, that I agree with Corey, that getting outside and is critical for mental health and and all around, but a lot of the folks in this, this small community of Las Lomas uh, were running out of food. So what do you do? And so this donor challenged us and said, well, you know, what's the relevance in a time like this? You know, how does land conservation have any impact at all on people's immediate needs? So we thought about it and saw an opportunity that the school, even though the school had closed, it was a distribution hub for meals. And so the families, the kids' families would come every morning and they would pick up breakfast and lunch for the students. And they were serving 600 meals a day. Parents would come by and pick up the food. And we realized that right across the street, there were farmers growing crops on land protected by the Elkhorn Slough Foundation. Uh, You know, beautiful organic, certified organic produce. And so this donor challenged us and, and he gave us a little bit of money. And in two days, we doubled the $5,000 he had given us and started buying produce from the farmers who were also challenged with these changing markets. And so the farmers delivered this beautiful food to the school where it's been distributed to the families coming to pick up food every week. I think so far, the first eight weeks, we we distributed three tons of this beautiful organic produce. In, uh, I think I told you, in two days, we matched the original gift. Uh, the Community Foundation stepped in. We have now raised $60,000 and are expanding the distribution of this organic produce grown on conservation lands to three schools in the district and helping these families that are are really challenged right now. And so it was, you know, this wouldn't have happened unless we had a community that had donors like the one who approached us and said, and challenged us and said, what, you know, what are you doing about this? And so this, I'm, I'm really, uh, it's heartwarming to see this. The farmers, the farmers are grateful to have the support. They're proud to be delivering the good food they've grown to the students and the school. And so it's been a nice circle, sort of linking healthy lands, healthy kids, healthy food. Um, anyway, this has been quite interesting. Yeah. So the, something that would not have happened I can, had we not been faced with this. Uh, well, Mark, you, you're challenge. again, I think understated to a level that I, I just think that ladies and gentlemen is how it's done. Is and And that relies on the experience and the judgment of someone of your caliber and duration there the donor base you have the connection to the reserve i mean really 
outstanding uh, and what a great story. Um, I don't know that anyone would say there's a silver lining to this awful uh, pandemic that our country is suffering in, but boy, that's a that's as good a story as you can possibly hear. Mark, it is not easy to manage coastal resources and coastal lands. A uh, lot of challenges involved. How has the the reserve system and your organization uh, been received in the community over time? You know, I think that when you struggle with uh, some of these challenges, um, you know, you get some credibility. And, and I, I will tell you that one of the things that uh, that struck me, you know, when we first started this work, Elkhorn Sluice suffered from serious damage from eroding farms on steep slopes above the estuary. Literally thousands of tons of sediment came off these slopes. In 1984, the what was then the Soil Conservation Service from the Department of U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, did work in the Elkhorn watershed. They measured the highest rates of erosion anywhere west of the Mississippi River in this little watershed. So these steep sandy slopes that uh, were cultivated and subject to massive erosion were a serious problem. And in those early days, my thought was, these guys are evil and this is really easy. This is unconscionable. They should, this shouldn't be happening. Make it stop. When we started managing farms, we made a decision to uh, keep some of the land that we had acquired uh, in production. And we saw how difficult it is to make a living as a farmer and how hard you have to work and how you are balancing uh, capital and markets and everything else that it gives you a little bit of humility. But I think it also uh, gave us a connection to the folks who were doing this work. And so we were able to do some of these experiments at our expense and work with the, then the nat- what became Soil Conservation Service became the uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service. So we worked closely with the staff from that department of the U.S. Department of Agriculture and implemented these practices on farms. And we're able to demonstrate that uh, you could do this in a way that was economically viable that met the regulatory requirements and that measurably reduced the inputs of these damaging elements into the waterway. And so I think generally that, that there's a, a positive relationship between the, the farm community and the work that we do. Uh, we've collaborated together on a lot of these things and uh, you know, it's been satisfying, but it is, it's yeah. very humbling when you see what it's like to farm land in these areas and do it in a way that is both economically viable and responsible. Right. And, and so we, we, makes great we sense. developed great, great appreciation. Well, I, I, I think that's folks. kind of the, the key, the key to it is the credibility uh, of the practices that you're trying to promote, uh, founded in good science, founded in research. Uh, I would imagine that the Elkhorn uh, Slough Reserve scientists can probably plot out on a graph what the tons of sediment and, uh, and erosive you know, material coming into the uh, 
uh, estuary were back in the 1980s and and show you what it looks like today because it's that continuity of scientific research and understanding, Corey, that, that you spoke about that really lets you demonstrate that there's a better way. When you're looking at the, the history uh, of of the Great Bay Estuarine Research Reserve, Corey, uh, over the years, is there a similar evolution of understanding in the at the community level that that you guys are aware of? One of the greatest evolutions that I've been around to witness is the way that communities in New Hampshire, the coastal communities, are thinking about climate adaptation. And you know, this is something that um, for a lot of places around the country. Um, was not discussed broadly enough until fairly recently. And here in New Hampshire, there was a dedicated group of natural resource professionals, community leaders, and academics that got together a while ago and said, we're going to form a group. It was a pretty informal group um, to share information and make sure that we're all kind of uh, matching up what the real concerns are going to be in New Hampshire with local science um, and that we're really being proactive about helping communities deal with this issue. And it's been phenomenal. I mean, I think that that there is no question that community leaders in New Hampshire, they're not just aware of the issue, they're really incorporating um, change, expected changes in precipitation and sea level rise and temperature shifts into the way they do their master plans, into the way they do their infrastructure planning. And we've been able to work with this incredible community of, of organizations to make sure that we're all working together to leverage resources and bring those resources to New Hampshire so that we can address this issue. So that's been one thing that I've seen both sort of a public perception shift on, a real understanding of the value of local science, um, because we've had a lot of downsales studies and very detailed work done here to understand specifically what we can do. Um, and, and so that's a place where I've really seen that type of evolution. Um, circling back, I also just think that Mark's example about how difficult it was to really sort of be in the shoes of the farmers and how much you can learn from that. Um, there's a couple of examples from Great Bay that I can share related to that as well. Please one do. is, yeah, one is that we have really tried to walk the walk when it comes to um, building sustainably. So when we've had an opportunity to, we always incorporate green features into our landscape at our visitor center. So that is include that that includes a solar roof, uh, composting toilets, geothermal heat, um, porous pavement, parking lot, all kinds of rain gardens, and uh, you know innovative sort of uh, landscaping, and. We have all um, had the opportunity to not just do this in sort of a righteous way, but to do it in a way where we're really clear about explaining it and explaining what has worked well and what has not worked well and what you can learn from us as an early adopter of some right. of these technologies. And so our geothermal system was way, you know, sized wrong. And it's because we were one of the first ones that were installed in our region, you know, um, for this type of application. And our um, you know, porous pavement, we had used a contractor that had never done it before. So there were some mistakes in the way it was put down. So it worked really well for a while. And now we're having some issues. But we can we can relay those lessons learned to our community and say, these systems work. And here's our advice for how, how we think we could have made it work even better. And we can be a resource for you because we tried it early on. So I think that our experience was sort of um, green facilities has been able to be something that we can kind of transfer to the rest of the community yeah, and, um, you know, have some of those lessons learned. 
And another thing is just restoration. And I think restoration science is so interesting. And Elkhorn is actually a national leader in thinking about restoration and how do you put current restoration efforts in the context of sort of the history of how um, natural systems on the coast change anyway. And so I think in New Hampshire, we've also had a lot of, you know, kind of just uh, we've, we've had some great restoration success. And we've also been able to learn from techniques that were popular for a few years to encourage certain species. And then there's a new technique that's popular to facilitate, you know, different species. And so that that's an important thing for some organization to track and be honest about over time so that the community of practice around restoration can learn from each other right. and, you know, continue to monitor what's working long-term for the plants and the animals that we're trying to um, encourage here in New Hampshire. Yeah. And that, that as well has been a really interesting learning experience as the conditions around us change, you know, the, as the climate is changing and water levels are changing, the condition of the estuary and the plants and animals that live in it are going to shift. And how does that align with how we approach land management and restoration decisions? Wow. So, yeah. um, so I think it's great to just be able to be a community resource where we're, we're asking sincere questions that we don't know the answer to. You know, we're not trying to prove a scientific point. We're, we're trying to learn. And so that we can all um, make the right choices or as right as we can make them <laughs> moving I'm, forward. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's the coolest program on the American shoreline is the national. I, Entra so. I, I think it really <laughs> is for the very reasons that you and Mark described. It's, it's the, you know, if you're a farmer and you're wondering, how can I do this differently? How can I retain soil and not contribute to the decline in the estuary? And you can go talk to Mark's group and go visit the farm that they're running and managing where the techniques have been, uh, in place for years where the outcomes have been evaluated by the research reserve system. I mean, you've got, a, you've got so much to offer in the same on the development side, you know, building in with green infrastructure and water retention and pervious pavement and all of that. If, if folks are thinking, gee, these regulations are so complicated, I have to deal with, how do I do any of this stuff? Well, go visit the Great Bay National Estuarine Research Reserve in your area and look at it and talk to the people who designed it and built it and monitor it and ask how much it costs and how hard it is and could it be done better? I mean, it just there's just such power in the real world applications of science in the hands of people committed to the best stewardship possible. Uh, so I really wanted to uh, to thank you both for being on the inaugural episode of the Fresh and Salty podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, uh, a collaboration between ASPN and the wonderful people at the National Estuarine Research Reserve Association. We want to thank them. Corey, closing thoughts? My closing thoughts are really just that I can't wait for all of your listeners to learn more about the reserves. There are so many interesting people who have like just fantastic stories and expertise to share. So keep tuning in. It's it's just, it's an amazing community to be a part of. And uh, thank you so much for inviting us to be on the podcast. Well, you are welcome. And Mark, what about you? What would you like to leave our listeners with today? You know, get down to the shore. <laughs> and I also, I just, I want to thank shore. that, uh, thank you, Peter and, and Corey, uh, you know, it's a pleasure. 
We are also looking forward to future episodes of the Fresh and Salty podcast. And listeners, you can follow along with this series by subscribing to the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Spotify, Apple Pods, and Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcast. And check out the National Estuarine Research Reserve Association at nira.org. See you next time on the next episode of the Fresh and Salty Podcast. Podcast.